Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll share a conversation I had with Joni Erickson, Johnny Erickson Tata on her book, Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective. We had anticipated a different interview, but we're grateful to share that conversation with Johnny Erickson Tata regarding her book that's coming up in the five o'clock hour. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's news. Authorities who allow activists to protest at the homes of Supreme Court justices in violation of the 18th U.S. Code 1507 are doing the bidding of uh, the Justice Department legal land judicial experts uh, told the Daily Signal, the U.S. Marshal report to the Attorney General, a judicial crisis network. President Kerry Severino said, if they were unwilling to enforce the the status uh, quo, the statute that presumably they're towing the the line of the Justice Department leadership. So the question is, why does the Attorney General still refuse to enforce federal law on the books, especially after the attempted assassination of Justice? Kavanaugh. The question is whether or not the law will be enforced with regard to um, uh, protests at the homes of Supreme Court justices. Well, at least three presidents, a vice president, a secretary of state and attorney general, the mishandling of classified documents isn't a problem until, well, until it is. President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump and the former vice president are all under the spotlight. The matter of classified records and who exactly has hung on to them got more complicated on Tuesday as news surfaced that former Vice President Mike, Pum, Mike Pence rather also had such records in his possession after he left office. Like President Biden, the vice president willingly turned them over to authorities after they were discovered during a search he requested, according to his lawyer and aides. Well, that revelation has thrust the issue of proper handling of documents and otherwise low key Washington process. That is uh, until um, Donald Trump refused to turn his over. And, well, you know, everything that followed into the middle of political discord and laid bare an uncomfortable truth policies that meant to control the handling of the nation's secrets are haphazardly enforced among top officials and rely almost wholly on good faith. It's been a problem off and on for decades, from presidents to cabinet members and staff across multiple administrations, stretching as far back as Jimmy Carter. Well, the issue has taken on greater significance since Donald Trump willfully retained classified material at his Florida estate, and that prompted the unprecedented FBI seizure of thousands of pages of records last year. Well, it turns out former officials from all levels of government discover they're in possession of classified material and turn them over to the authorities at least several times a year, according to a person familiar with the matter who spoke on condition of anonymity due to the sensitive nature of classified documents. Well, current and former officials involved in the handling of classified information say that while there are clear policies of how such information should be reviewed and stored, those policies are sometimes pushed aside at the highest levels. Teams of national security officials, secretaries and military aides who share responsibility for keeping these top level executives informed and the executives themselves may bend the rules for convenience, expediency and sometimes due to carelessness. Sometimes they're moving out of the White House so quickly, for example, it's inadvertent or perhaps in another office. It's a a contrast to the more rigid way that uh, procedures are followed across the wider intelligence community 
where mishandling information could be grounds for termination, a security clearance revocation, or even prosecution. Executives go back and forth to their house with documents and read them. They read them at night. They bring them back. So says Senator Tim Kaine, a Democrat out of Virginia. He contrasted that pattern for top officials to senators who are required to retain classified materials in secure rooms at the Capitol. I can see how this happens, he says. But again, every situation is different. They're all very serious. So how many? How serious? How did you get them? Uh, Who had access to them? Are you being cooperative? And the same set of questions has to be answered with respect to Pence and with President Biden and President Trump, end quote. Well, as for the judiciary, a separate federal law, the Classified Information Procedures Act, governs the handling of material that comes before judges in criminal prosecution and civil lawsuits. Another law deals with foreign intelligence investigations that comes before a special court that operates in secrecy. Both laws are intended to guard against the disclosure of classified information. And while former President Trump intended to keep the documents, he argued in apparent disregard of the Presidential Records Act, that they were his personal property. He was hardly the first president to mishandle classified information. Former President Jimmy Carter found classified materials at his home in Plains, Georgia, on at least one occasion and returned them to the National Archives, according to the same person who spoke of regular occurrences of mishandling documents. The person didn't provide details on the timing of the discovery. An aide to the Carter Center provided no details when asked about the account of Carter's discovering documents at his home after leaving office in 1981. It's notable that Carter signed the Presidential Records Act in 1978, but it did not apply to records of his administration, taking effect years later when Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. Before Reagan, presidential records were generally considered the private property of the president individually. Well, nonetheless, Carter invited federal archivists to to assist the White House in organizing his records in preparation for his eventual repository at his presidential library in Georgia. The National Archives de- uh, declined the com- to comment rather when asked to provide a list of times that classified documents were turned over to the agency by former presidents. Meanwhile, other former senior U.S. officials have insisted they have always appropriately handled classified materials, just like um, every president in this controversy and the vice president claimed before they were discovered. A spokesman for former Vice President Dick Cheney said he didn't leave office with classified materials and none have been discovered at any point since. Frederick uh, Freddie Ford, a spokesman for former President George W. Bush, told the Associated Press that all presidential records, classified and unclassified, were turned over to National Archives upon leaving the White House, referring to the Records Administration. A spokesperson for President Barack Obama didn't comment, but later said, Uh, in a statement that um, he has no classified documents. The closing days of any presidency are chaotic as aides sort through years of their bosses' accumulated materials to determine what must be turned over to the archives and what may be retained. Different teams of individuals are responsible for clearing different offices and maintaining consistent standards can prove challenging. In Pence's case, the material found in the boxes came mostly from his official residence at the Naval Observatory, where packing was handled by military aides rather than staff lawyers. Other material came from a West Wing office drawer, according to Pence, um, an aide who spoke on condition of anonymity. The boxes were taped shut. They were not uh, believed to have been opened since they were packed, uh, according to that person. Well, there have been accusations of mishandling documents while officials were still on the job and Of course, this is an ongoing controversy that we have seen 
since the Carter administration. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue to look at the news and this particular controversy when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the program, a conversation I had with Johnny Erickson Tata, Heaven, Your Real Home. From a higher perspective, that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We've been talking about classified records and the fact that they pose a conundrum stretching back to the Carter administration. There have also been accusations of mishandling documents while officials are still on the job. Former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez took home highly sensitive documents that dealt with the National Security Agency's terrorist surveillance program and the terrorist detainee interrogation program in the late 2000s. Hillary Clinton was investigated for mishandling classified information via a private email server she used as Secretary of State. There's a whole nother part of that story we won't get into. But rarely are officials punished for these mistakes. That's um, in large part because while federal law does not allow anyone to store classified documents in an unauthorized location, it's only a prosecutable crime when someone is found to have knowingly removed the documents from a proper place. Mishandling documents is often returned with little fanfare or national news coverage, and there is no um, uh, one reason for why records are mishandled as the process of presidential records management plays out to mid chaos at the end of a presidential term. It's based mostly on good faith agreement between the archives and the outgoing administration. Perhaps that should be revisited, given the fact that it happens rather quickly. The National Archives has historically worked under an honor system with any administration. The first director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum points out they work for the president and the vice president, and they have partnership with all these former presidents and vice presidents. The White House Counsel's Office declined to comment on whether the current president would uh, order a review of how classified documents are handled across the government in response to the latest discoveries. And that's plural. The power to change or amend how classified documents are handled rests largely with the president. And President Biden, who is actively under investigation, is not likely to investigate a review or at least instigate one or order any changes in procedure because it could be seen as a political movement to better his own circumstances. That says it's probably not going to be addressed by any future administration, perhaps for the same reasons. But we'll follow the story. And if it develops for the good of the uh, American people, we'll let you know. Meanwhile, Mike Pence is a truly unique politician because he places great value on honor and integrity. He's the same guy, after all, who makes a point of avoiding being alone with a woman who's not his wife. Now He uh, was laughed at for making that uh, commitment to his wife. Well, the media personalities mocked him just as they... uh, they're now mocking him for discovering classified documents at his Indiana home. Well, this doesn't seem, or rather it does seem to be a rather disconcerting fad among members of the last three administrations, but there are some key differences. Before we um, go into those differences, the gist of Pence's story is that after multiple batches of classified documents were found in Joe Biden's garage and think tank, uh, Pence ordered a search of his own home. Lawyers found a small number of documents bearing classified markings, uh, that were inadvertently boxed and transported. They added that uh, Pence was unaware of their existence, which is typically the case, and they alerted the National Archives. The FBI retrieved the documents a day later. The actual material in those documents remains unknown, though we suspect a good bit of the problem here is what constitutes classified material in the first place. In other words, these aren't the nuclear codes or valuable intel that jeopardize national security or personnel 
The documents are probably low-level briefings or some hand-scribbled notes. That does uh, that goes for Biden and Donald Trump too. Hillary Clinton, um, with with her, it was just uh, wedding plans and yoga routines, right? Well, then again, anyone in government who handles classified materials has uh, must be cringing right now. Every last one of them knows that they've. Um, uh, they'd be in a jail cell already. Well, that said, I don't believe that for a minute that Mike Pence is trying to intentionally compromise national security, and that's probably the case with most of these instances that have come to light in recent days. But with special counsel on two presidents, one sitting, one former, we'll find out just how serious it is and whether or not policy changes are forthcoming. In other political uh, news, in the name of vengeance, big-name Democrats fired back after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy kept them off committees. This is an ongoing, unfolding drama. Taking stock, a GOP senator has introduced the Pelosi Act to drastically change Congress. Silent and scandal, uh, or I should say amid scandal, questions swirl about the National Archives' handling of said documents. And going to win, the sports betting battle could go all the way to the Supreme Court. Well, don't take the bait. Last week, China's dictator Xi Jinping sent Vice Premier Liu He to uh, launch a charm offensive at the annual World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, seeking foreign investment to reboot China's economy and rescue his shaking regime. Well, while, Vice, uh, while the Vice Premier Liu uh, tried to uh, drum up foreign investment at Davos last week, China reported that its economy grew only 3% last year. According to the Wall Street Journal, aside from 2020, when the economy grew only 2.2%, last year marked the worst year for gross domestic product growth in China since 1976, the year that Mao Zedong's death ended the decade of strife known as the Cultural Revolution. Xi bears the most uh, blame for the significant slowdown in China's economic growth, and China's Xi wants to use capitalist, capitalism rather to save communism. It's rather interesting uh, development under scrutiny, the classified document scandal complicate the White House bid for three 2024 hopefuls and not the right answer. New York Governor Kathy Hochul is rehiring unvaccinated health care workers. Bread and circuses. GOP Representative Victoria Sparts blasted Speaker McCarthy for kicking Democrats off committees. The controversy continues and it may not succeed, but that's what he's attempting to do. Flying high. Conservatives are celebrating a non-woke films Oscar nomination. American flag emojis took center stage on Twitter after conservatives caught wind of Top Gun Maverick's Oscar nomination for Best Picture. And some are saying it's the non-woke movie everyone can root for. Turning to the dark side, legendary Star Wars actor and prominent Hollywood liberal Mark Hamill is in hot water on Twitter for having recently liked a tweet posted by J.K. Rowling. The Harry Potter author has for years been facing the wrath of cancel culture due to tweets repeatedly saying that biological sex is not a social construct. That's considered um, communication that should not be permitted by some. Now, Hamill, the 71-year-old actor who played Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars series of movies, found himself the target of an Internet firestorm for merely liking a cheeky comment from Rowling on Twitter. Recession will worsen. That's what we're being told with the U.S. in danger of breaking through its debt ceiling, ongoing inflationary pressures and a recession. Wall Street traders are preparing for another year of market volatility in 2023. Peter Schiff of Euro Pacific Capital says inflation will be higher by year's end as the U.S. debt tops economic 
hurdles. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Johnny Erickson Tata. California introduced a wealth tax forcing people to pay years after they leave the state. Lawmakers there are pushing legislation that would impose a new tax on the state's wealthiest residents, even if they've already moved to another part of the country. One assemblyman, Alex Lee, a progressive Democrat last week, introduced a bill in the California state legislature that would impose an extra annual 1.5 percent tax on those with a worldwide net worth of above one billion dollars starting as early as January of 2024. The tax uh, will apply to every resident, regardless of whether they are in the state part-time or temporarily. It will also allow the state to pursue wealth taxes from former residents who built their wealth in California and then moved. For those who move out of state and do not plan on returning, the wealth tax will be slowly decreased over several years. Based on the percentage of days in the year the taxpayer was present in the state, plus the years of residence over the three previous Taxable years, the bill states. Wow, is that even legal? Speaker McCarthy has officially rejected top Democrats' committee assignments. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy rejected Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries' demands to reappoint Representative Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff, both Democrats from California, to the Committee on Intelligence on Tuesday. Jeffries said in a letter to McCarthy on Friday that Schiff and Swalwell were eminently qualified legislators with more than two decades of providing oversight of the nation's intelligence. As for Kevin McCarthy, I have rejected the appointments of Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell for the House Intelligence Committee. I am committed to returning the House uh, Intel Committee to one of the genuinely honest and credible to uh, genuine honesty and credibility that regains the trust of the American people That showdown. Uh, will continue. The Florida Supreme Court upheld the 15-week abortion ban during the ongoing lawsuit. Life News reported that the Florida Supreme Court ruled that the 15-week ban that Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law last year can continue saving babies from abortions while the pro-abortion lawsuit against it continues. The ruling is a good sign about the long-term prospects of upholding the pro-life law and using it as a springboard to pass stronger legislation protecting more babies from abortion. Planned Parenthood, the American Civil Liberties Unions, um, handsome abortion companies um, tried to get the state's highest court to halt the law while their case continues. DeSantis, who signed the legislation into law last year, has appointed three conservative justices to the state Supreme Court in his tenure. His administration has previously indicated that he is waiting for the court challenge to play out before pursuing additional legislation to further restrict access to abortion earlier in pregnancy in his state. The U.S. has asked Russian affiliated countries to donate old Russian equipment to Ukraine, saying the U.S. will replace the donated equipment. The United States has asked Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela and six other Latin American nations to send their old Russian weapons to Ukraine in exchange for U.S. equipment. U.S. Southcom Commander General Laura Richardson discussed the request in a recent interview um, in light of uh, munitions shortages that were recently announced Uh, Coming out of Washington as well. President Biden is looking to reverse course by considering sending Ukraine Abrams tanks and what would be a reversal. The administration is poised to approve sending M1 Abrams tanks 
to the country. U.S. officials said yesterday as international reluctance to send tanks to the battlefront against the Russians begins to erode. The decision could be announced and was on Wednesday, though it could take months or years for the tanks to actually be delivered. So I'm not sure what use they will be if it takes years to get there. Iran is irate with the new Western sanctions promising retaliation. Iran on Tuesday strongly condemned new sanctions imposed by the European Union in Britain and said it would retaliate after the West stepped up pressure on Iran over its crackdown on protests. The European Union imposed sanctions on more than 30 Iranian officials and organizations, including units of the powerful Revolutionary Guards, blaming them for a brutal crackdown on unrest and other human rights abuses. This is the ninth round of U.S. sanctions put into effect because of the regime's oppression of protesters. Unfortunately, the regime is resilient. The clerics have survived decades of Western sanctions. Walmart has increased its hourly wage to $14. Walmart Inc. said it's raising the wage for its U.S. hourly workers as the retailer continues to fight to attract staff in a tight labor market for frontline workers. Starting next month, Walmart's U.S. workers in stores and warehouses will earn a starting wage of at least $14 an hour, up from $12, the country's largest private employer said in a memo to staff on Tuesday. Rivals, including Amazon and Target, have a $15 an hour minimum wage, while Costco Wholesale Core minimum is even higher. A Pence lawyer has found classified documents in the former vice president's home. They have since been turned to National Archives or returned. The Department of Justice is suing Google, saying Google should be forced to sell ad services. The Justice Department sued Alphabet's Google on Tuesday, accusing the company of abusing its dominance of the digital advertising business and said Google should be forced to sell its ad manager suite in the government's latest jab at thwarting big tech's market power. The lawsuit tackles a business at Google that's responsible for 80 percent of its revenue. The Justice Department asked the court to compel Google to break up its ad technology business. Wall Street Journal reports that last year Google offered to split off parts of its ad tech business into a separate company under the Alphabet umbrella to fend off the most recent Justice Department investigation. But the department officials rejected the offer and decided to pursue the lawsuit instead. Japanese Prime Minister says Japan is standing on the verge of whether we can continue to function as a society. End quotes. Well, the Japanese Prime Minister Uh, pledged on Monday to take urgent steps to tackle the country's declining birth rate, saying it was now or never for one of the world's oldest societies. Japan has in recent years been trying to encourage its people to have more children with promises of cash bonuses and better benefits, but it remains one of the most expensive places in the world to raise a child. He said that he eventually wants the government to double its spending on child-related programs. A new government agency... To focus on the issue would be set up in April, he added. Falling birth rates are driven by a range of factors, including rising living costs, more women in education and work, as well as greater access to contraception, leading to women choosing to have fewer children. Last week, China reported its first drop in population for 60 years. What's my time, Sam? All right, we can still go. Well, Democrats want to eliminate the debt ceiling. Imagine that. They can just spend without any limitations. Once again, they've singled their belief that all Americans' money really belongs to the federal government to be spent however they see fit. Well, House Democrats introduced a bill that would eliminate the federal debt ceiling that is set by 
uh, the legislature, uh, legislation that would effectively release the government from any borrowing limits. Representative Bill Foster, a Democrat from Illinois, co-sponsored the bill, arguing that eliminating the debt ceiling is necessary because the government has an obligation to pay its bills. Paying the bills isn't the issue. It's spending and creating the bills. That's really the problem. Talk about um, obtuse. How about paying down the nation's $31 trillion debt bill? Instead, uh, the Democrats' proposal would only ensure the expanding of our national debt by freeing up lawmakers to continuously grow the federal government, which it does now with a brief pause before lifting the uh, ceiling, while saddling American taxpayers with the cost, which erodes their economic liberty, devalues financial savings and the like. Well, the debt limit is an indispensable tool to safeguard the American people from reckless expansions of the size and scope of the federal government. Richard Stern from the Heritage Foundation points out that repealing it would simply give a blank check to the woke left wing establishment that's trying to dismantle our nation. Well, the truth is, it's not just the woke left wing establishment. There are plenty on the right who would like to spend your money. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is refusing to negotiate any kind of spending cuts with Republican lawmakers in order to raise the debt limit, despite the fact that 60 percent of voters believe there should be some spending cuts or no debt limit increase at all. Indeed, with the government losing some $400 billion in unemployment pandemic relief to fraud over the last uh, three years, voters are right to object to a blank check for even more of this type of recklessness. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Johnny Erickson Tata. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Second hour. Johnny Erickson Tata, heaven, your real home. Well, the fact checkers love Greta Thunberg. The climate activist was recently arrested by German police during a protest of the expansion of the coal mine. The mainstream media reported on the incident with dramatic footage of the arrest that depicted her being literally carried off, apparently against her will, by police officers in riot gear. Well, following the release of the leaked video footage, it became apparent that the whole incident was effectively a staged publicity stunt. Imagine that. Prior to the dramatic arrest, she and the officers are seen standing around laughing and joking as if waiting for the cue for the director to initiate the arrest scene. Naturally, the media fact checkers came running to her defense, asserting that it was not staged because she was not actually arrested, but merely detained. Uh, These fact checkers further noted that the German police insisted they were not the extras for the staging of Greta Thunberg. They may have um, may not have been extras, but they were certainly being used as props and appeared more than willing to do so. Whether or not the police were in on the plan, it was clearly intended uh, as a publicity stunt in a word staged. Furthermore, the fact that she was not officially arrested only served to underscore the reality of the staged event. Fact checkers love to come Uh, After conservatives who dare to call out their blatant peddling of fake news, and this certainly was that. I've seen the footage of uh, both the preliminaries where they were palling around and when they at least appeared to um, usher her away. M1 Abrams tanks are headed to Ukraine. In an about face, the administration on Tuesday announced that it would be selling the M1 Abrams tanks to, or rather sending, to Ukraine to help in the ongoing war with Russia. The plan is to send roughly 30 tanks, but it will likely be months, perhaps even years, before they actually arrive. 
Mitch McConnell welcomed the news, arguing that it's past time, past time for the administration and our allies to get serious about helping Ukraine finish the job and retake the country. Well, if anything is apparent, it's that this war does not appear to be heading to an end anytime soon. Tucker Carlson revealed uh, an email that raises questions about Hunter Biden's access to classified documents. And Texas leads 20 Republican states in suing the Biden administration over his migrant parole program announced a week or so ago. Josh Hawley introduced the Pelosi Act banning lawmakers from trading stocks. Senators are eyeing Social Security reform as some in the House GOP consider cuts. Conservative outlet Newsmax has been dropped from DirecTV's channel lineup despite GOP pleas and pro-abortion extremists have been indicted for allegedly defacing pro-life pregnancy centers. Finally, two arrests, uh, which centers and uh, to what extent the damage uh, caused by them is being addressed uh, remains to be seen. And W restaurants raised eyebrows after tweeting that Rudy, the great root bear, its mascot for decades, would henceforth be wearing denim jeans and later admitted it's a joke. In the initial Twitter post Tuesday, the company suggested that Rudy's lack of pants was polarizing. Sort of a take on the M&M controversy regarding some of their um, uh, woke characters. More on that later in the program. Well, on this day in history, 1533, England's King Henry VIII secretly marries his second wife, Anne Boylan, who would later give birth to Elizabeth I. 1863, during the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln accepts Major General Ambrose Burnside's resignation as commander of the Army of the Potomac and replaces him with Major General Joseph Hooker. 1890, reporter Nellie Bly, Elizabeth Cochran of the New York World, uh, completes a round-the-world journey in 72 days, 6 hours, and 11 minutes. 1890, the United Mine Workers of America is founded in Columbus, Ohio. 1915, America's first official transcontinental telephone call takes place as Alexander Graham Bell, who is in New York, speaks to his former assistant, Thomas Watson, who is in San Francisco over a line set up by American Telephone and Telegraph. 1924, the first Winter Olympic Games opens in France. 1936, on this day in history, former Governor Al Smith, a Democrat from New York, delivers a radio address in Washington titled Betrayal of the Democratic Party, in which he fiercely criticizes the New Deal policies of President Franklin D. Roosevelt. 1945, the Battle of the Bulge in World War II ends as German forces are pushed back to their original positions. Also in 1945, on this day in history, Grand Rapids, Michigan, becomes the first community to add fluoride to its public water supply. 1961, President John F. Kennedy, he holds the first presidential news conference to be carried live on radio and television. 1971, Charles Manson and three followers are convicted in Los Angeles of murder and conspiracy in the 1969 slayings of seven people. 1993, Sears announces it will no longer publish its famous Century-old catalog. Oh, how I loved to peruse that catalog when I was young, picking out what I was going to buy. Of course, I had no money. I had no job. But I'd pick out my school clothes and which shoes I liked and just get a view on the world outside of my own little community, my own household. 1993, they stopped producing the century-old catalog. 1998, Pope John II ends his historic journey to Cuba. And in 2014, on this day in history, the Anaheim Ducks beat the Los Angeles Kings 3-0 at Dodger Stadium in the NHL's first warm-weather outdoor game.
2018, the White House unveils an immigration proposal that would provide a pathway to citizenship for 1.8 million young immigrants living in the country illegally in exchange for new restrictions on legal migration and $25 billion in border security. That didn't work out quite as um, as promised. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, Roger Stone, former longtime political advisor to President Trump, is indicted on charges of obstruction, making false statements and witness tampering as part of special counsel Robert Mueller's wide-ranging Russia collusion probe. Well, Ted Cruz, the Republican out of Texas, commemorated National School Choice Week by filing um, uh, a bill, two bills, uh, to advance school choice, one of which his staff would uh, be uh, heard uh, talking about in terms of education reform. He's calling it the uh, greatest education reform since the GI Bill. We need to provide students with a variety of educational options to fit their needs, Cruz told uh, media in an email in a statement. I have often said the school choice is the civil rights issue of the 21st century, and I believe no differently today than I did when I began serving in the Senate a decade ago. Each student learns differently and ought to be afforded the opportunity, regardless of where they come from, how they learn or what they plan to do from pursuing a college degree to attend vocational school, he added. Well, Cruz filed two bills, the Student Empowerment Act and the Education Freedom Scholarship and Opportunity Act on Tuesday. The Student Empowerment Act builds on his Student Opportunity Amendment, an edited version of which passed as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. That amendment enables families to spend up to $10,000 from 529 tax advance savings plans for various non-public K-12 education expenses. Since 2017, 529 plans have grown from $13.3 million to more than $15.9 million in 2022. The Student Empowerment Act, it restores the original intent of Senator Cruz's uh, Student Opportunity Amendment. A Cruz spokesperson says the original amendment allowed parents and guardians to use 529 accounts for almost all K-12 expenses, most notably homeschooling expenses and various types of special needs therapies. In an effort to strip the entire amendment from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the Democrats challenged the amendment's germaneness and were able to get the Senate parliamentarian to strip out homeschooling and special therapies from the amendment. The Education Freedom Scholarships and Opportunity Act creates a dollar-for-dollar federal tax credit for donations to scholarship granting organizations and workforce training organizations. The bill allocates $5 billion for education and $5 billion for workforce training per year for a combined investment of $100 billion over 10 years. Wow. A Vanderbilt professor delivered a, a lecture earlier this month at a major mathematician meeting, and I'm uh, being told that I don't have time to talk about it, so I'll hold that over for another day, perhaps tomorrow. Coming up, a conversation with Johnny Erickson Tata, the book Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective. That's coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Men and women alike should be able to take time off from work for family and medical needs without the risk of losing their jobs. Unfortunately, when policymakers turn something that should be voluntary, offered by employers into a rigid legal mandate, there are unintended consequences. Well, in the case of family and medical leave laws in the U.S., a recent economic study found that those laws have led to lower relative wages for women and thwarted the convergence of women's wages relative to men's. 
Well, in the decades prior to the passage of the Family Medical Leave Act in 1993, a federal law that guarantees 12 weeks of unpaid job protected family or medical leave to workers in companies with 50 or more employers, employees rather, white women's wages have been um, converging relative to white men's at the rate of 0.70 percent points per year. Well, in the decade after passage of the FMLA, the rate of the convergence fell to 0.03 percentage points. The rate of convergence for black women to white men fell from 0.30 percentage points per year prior to the passage to 0.05 percentage points after. Well, it's important to note that the raw so-called gender wage gap, which claims that women made only 82 percent on the dollar compared to men in 2029, is not a scientific metric because it simply compares the wages of full time women to full time men. Well, after factoring in observable characteristics like occupation, experience and education, the so-called gap shrinks considerably after accounting for changes in such observable characteristics. However, the study Uh, Its authors found that the introduction of family leave laws can explain 94 percent of the reduction in the rate of gender wage convergence that's unaccounted for after controlling for changes in observable characteristics of the workers. And I'm quoting from the uh, study. Well, the authors estimated that if gender wage convergence had continued at the pre-family leave rate, wage parity between white women and white men would have been achieved as early as 2017. Again, unintended consequences. Well, these findings were based not only on the introduction of the federal FMLA, but more precisely by comparing wage convergences in 12 states that enacted these programs, family leave laws prior to the federal um, plan to converge in states that did not enact such laws. Well, the study confirms the basic economic principle that there's no such thing as a free lunch, meaning that with any supposed government-created benefit, there are trade-offs, and it demonstrates the impossibility of providing flexibility to employees and their employers uh, via one-size-fits-all government mandates. Well, that's an important lesson for policymakers who understandably want to help more people benefit from access to paid family and medical leave. Now, if laws that mandate access for some workers to unpaid family and medical leave ends up hurting women's wages, how many more unintended consequences could ensue from laws that impose paid leave mandates or create new government entitlements? Inertia, fortunately, more aptly, the, the free market working as it should to reflect workers' desires is on our side. Between 2016 and 2021, the percentage of private sector workers who have access to paid family and medical leave increased 77%. That feature, rather, will undoubtedly continue to grow, but government mandates could thwart its rise and cause many other unintended consequences. Well, I'll leave it at that, but it's rather interesting to consider the role that government plays in making a problem that uh, we all agree exists worse with their solution. Well, the British single payer health care program is cratering, and that should be a wake up call for for the United States. Rishi Sunak, who is the United Kingdom's new prime minister, refuses to answer a simple question. He was asked three times whether he received private medical care or relied upon the National Health Service, the British version of single payer government run national health insurance. Well, Sunak dismissed the question as not really relevant, but it is. The prime minister is the head of the British government and is ultimately responsible for the National Health Service, the government agency that's supposed to provide free universal coverage and care for all Britons 
uh, British citizens. I actually cannot see your hand in the darkness. Thank you. Uh, It does no such thing. Well, according to the BBC, there are 7.2 million British citizens awaiting medical care or almost 11 percent of the entire British population. Sky News reports that more than 400,000 people in England have been waiting hospital treatment for more than a year. And right now, the most salient problem is emergency care. According to the Telegraph, December data show that people suffering a heart attack face an average wait of 90 minutes for an ambulance, with some waiting up to two, two and a half hours. For emergency care, the Telegraph further reports 55,000 people were forced to wait on hospital gurneys for at least 12 hours following emergency department decisions to admit them. Of course, patients suffering from a stroke or a heart attack are always in a race against time as medical delays can result in permanent disability or death. So it matters. Surveying the carnage, Dr. Adrian Boyle, president of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, he estimated that between 300 and 500 people are dying every week because of delays and related problems in the delivery of emergency medical care. Again, in the U.K., the COVID-19 pandemic has been a punishing stress test for Britain. Uh, as well as for the United States and other countries. America's performance in that regard has been crippled by several federal government uh, failures, even as the COVID-19 pandemic highlighted the structural weakness of the British single-payer health care system. A writing in the British Medical Journal, public health experts warned in May 2020, early in the pandemic, that the British government was not prepared to respond well to COVID-19. In fact, COVID-19 pandemic simply deepened long persisting problems underlying the British single payer program. As the BBC reported, the current crisis in Britain's single payer system, though aggravated by a nasty flu season, has been building for decades. For American, there's a lesson here. Some in Congress have been saying that the case for an American version of a single-payer health system abolishing virtually all private health insurance and transferring health care financing and key decision-making to Congress and the federal officials is even stronger in that um, the uh, aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's a bold claim. The reality, however, is that the Congressional Single-Payer Bill, which is House Resolution 17, or rather 1976, contains the key components driving the implosion of the British healthcare system, including government budgeting, bureaucratic central planning, and reduced pay for doctors and nurses. Yet last year, 120 House Democrats co-sponsored the legislation. In sharp contrast to the Congressional Liberals' top-down regime, which would restrict private coverage and care for Americans, British patients are still free to go outside the British single-payer system and spend their own money on private health insurance coverage and care of their choice. As noted, Sunak, the prime minister, has that option, even though he won't say whether or not he's taken advantage of it. It might look bad. Well, big reductions in the pay for medical professionals, as uh, authorized in the congressional single-payer legislation, can indeed reduce health care spending, but there's a big price. You pay less, you get less. Britain has the lowest number of doctors per 1,000 patients in all of Western Europe, while British nurses rank third lowest ahead of only Italy and Spain in their availability to patients. Compared to their American counterparts, British doctors and nurses have relatively low pay. There's nothing shocking about Britain's single-payer system being periodically hit by labor strikes as well as serious shortages of vital supplies and equipment. And as in the United States and among countries with advanced economies, Britain's COVID-19 lockdowns, 
They've imposed a heavy price on personal health in delays and denials of medical care, particularly from pauses in medical treatment, including chemotherapy, as well as preventative care, such as mammograms. Last August, the Telegraph reported that an estimated 10,000 cancer patients had been waiting for three months. Uh, Professor Pat Price, an oncologist with Imperial College of London, said um, the uh, uh, there will be tens of thousands of cancer patients who die unnecessarily because of the disruption with COVID. Even though the pandemic has been receding in Britain, as in the United States, the number of patients getting a face-to-face appointment with a doctor, according to the Telegraph, is still below pre-pandemic levels in England. Their uh, newspapers noted only 2% of general practitioner practices are seeing their patients within a two-week period. So this is a serious matter to consider as the United States ponders the possibility of adopting the same program. Now, the editors of the Daily Mirror declared, without radical reforms, the National Health Service is doomed. That's a direct quote. The Guardian, one of Britain's top left-wing publications, says that the crisis-ridden NHS is falling apart. The leader of Britain's uh, opposition party says the gravity of the NHS crisis is um, criticizing the system, uh, the, the system's bureaucracy, and is calling for the private sector to help clear Britain's enormous waiting list. So a rather interesting development there that we would do well to be aware of. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest became a quadriplegic. She had a diving accident in 1967. She's the founder of a ministry to the disabled, and she writes with an eternal perspective. Her book, Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective, is a book that's been rewritten in light of years of serving, sitting in a wheelchair. In the book, the founder of Johnny and Friends tells her readers about the blessings that came with her suffering. She says, 50 years of paralysis, 50 years in a wheelchair, I have no regrets. Now, that gives us a moment to pause. Everything else, everything this world has to offer, she writes, pales, fades to less than nothing in comparison to daily companionship with the Son of God and the prospect of being home with him forever. Well, of course, I'm referring to Johnny Erickson Tata. She's founder and CEO of Johnny and Friends, an organization that that um, uh, accelerates Christian outreach to and uh, with the disability community. She is also the author of numerous best-selling books, including When God Weeps, Diamonds in the Dust, and A Spectacle of Glory. Johnny and her husband, Ken, have been married for 36 years, and she joins us today to talk about the re-release of her profound book, Heaven, Your Real Home. Johnny Erickson Tata, it is a pleasure to have you back. Oh, Georgine, thanks for having me, and of course, uh, all our friends listening today. Now, this book, Heaven, was released originally in 1995, but you decided to update and re-release the book because you've experienced so much more of life Uh, since that first release. Talk a little bit about um, the first version as compared to the the second edition, looking back over those many years. Well, um, not long ago, about a year or so ago, I decided to pick up that book that I wrote 25 years ago, Heaven Your Old Home, you mentioned it. But when I was reading it, I, I just thought, you know, I've got so much more to say. This In this book, it's like... um like only a, a story half told because I'm in such a different place in my journey right now and body and my soul and spirit. It, it feels like I've come such a great distance 
Now that might be because what, you know, 52 years in a wheelchair and uh, daily living with the effects of gravity on my aging paralyzed body. It might be uh, because of the battle with cancer I had back in 2010. And of course, now it's recurred and I'm battling it again. Obviously, uh, it could be uh, day after day living with chronic pain, but my life now looks different to me now than it did 25 years ago. I've, I've, I've studied more. I have suffered more. I have endured more. I've learned more. I've prayed more. And I guess, Georgina, I've just fallen in love with Jesus. Hmm. And so I, I wanted to talk about that in this uh, revised edition of my book on heaven. Now, you write in the preface to the new edition that the longer you journey with your eyes on heaven, the more you begin to see. I think many of us might assume that living with a suffering that increases over time, you might have less regard for uh, the things that the scriptures have to say about heaven, that bitterness uh, might settle in. But you write just the opposite, that you long for heaven in a different way than you did in those early days, uh, but have come to understand it perhaps a bit better and long for it differently. Absolutely. You know, we often, when we, when we think about heaven, uh, we can't help but think of uh, 24 karat gold streets and tree-lined crystal rivers and uh, rainbow thrones and uh, lakes of, of, of made of glass and, it, and, and the New Jerusalem, which looks like uh, you know, it probably uh, pales the city of Oz in comparison. I mean, it just doesn't look very appealing. It doesn't look very attractive. But heaven isn't so much a place of, of 24-karat gold streets and, and uh, tree-lined avenues that flow from a throne in the center of this magnificent city. No, heaven is more of a person. But I didn't say nearly enough about that in the first book. Um, I, I just want people to understand that to long for heaven is to long for Jesus. And, and if, we don't have, if we don't have good thoughts about heaven, if we don't get excited about going there, if we're not investing our heart's treasures there, then I, I would beg to say that perhaps we're not searching after Jesus hard enough. Mm. If, because if we don't love Jesus, if we're not in love with Jesus, we're, we're not going to be excited about heaven. But if we do love him, oh my goodness, wherever he is, we want to be. And of course, that's in heaven. So in this book, um, I talk a lot about my friend, the Lord Jesus, who's closer than a brother. He is my bridegroom, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's the king. He's my king. And prolonged suffering, Georgina, I think has given me that focus. As, as the days slip by, as I deal with chronic pain daily, and now this second bat- battle with stage three cancer, my focus is much, much more on Jesus, which means my focus is much more on heaven. Mm. You point out that in the early days of your paralysis, you were fascinated by heaven because uh, you would be healed there. Um, it was an escape from the reality that you uh, lived at the time and still live in even more painful ways. But you write that your perception of heaven has changed as you've gained spiritual maturity. And that should really be the trajectory of our understanding in regard for heaven, regardless of our physical circumstance, should it not? Oh, absolutely. You know, often when we think of heaven, we think of what we're going to get. We think of what we're going to gain. And so many people look at me, a quadriplegic, paralyzed in this wheelchair, and they probably assume that all I ever think about 
when I think of heaven, it's getting back use of my body, glorified hands that work and feet that run, and I'll be able to jump up and do dance and kick into aerobics and embrace my friends and feel my feet on running on a meadow or splashing in a stream or you know, reaching for any. They assume that I'm looking forward to heaven because I want my new body. Again, we often look at heaven as a place where we will get things or gain things or get back what we lost here on earth. But I tell you, Georgianne, the more I study the Lord Jesus and fall in love with him, the more I want in heaven to have a new heart. I want a heart that's free of sin. I want a heart that no longer tries to twist the truth. I want a heart that doesn't um, uh, you know, fudge the truth or manipulate others with precisely timed phrases. It's not always hogging the spotlight. I want a heart that, that looks out for the interest of others first before my own. I want a heart that doesn't bear a grudge, that, that thinks the best of other people. I, mean, I want a heart that doesn't sin. I think that's what I am most looking forward to in heaven. Not a new body, but a new heart. Because heaven is a holy habitation for holy people. And if we don't get about the business of being holy as Christ is holy down here on earth, then there's going to be nothing appealing about heaven to draw us. So as I've fallen in love more with Christ, again, which has given me a longing for heaven, it means I want to get rid of sin in my life. I want to divest myself of self-interest, self-righteousness, self-awareness, self-consciousness, self-consumption. I, I just want to get rid of the self and be less of me and have more of him. And this book will help people do just that as they read their journey with me in this whole exciting adventure of dying to yourself daily and rising with Jesus. Every morning I get up and I've got to go through a bed bath and people um, you know, doing my toileting routines and giving me leg exercises and putting on my clothes and strapping on my corset and lifting me in a wheelchair and brushing my teeth and brushing my hair. And I mean, every morning I've got to die to myself and say, no, I, 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 I can't, I can't allow pity, self-pity to overtake me. I, I've got to die to myself and my own wants and wishes. And I've got to rise to Jesus and his grace, his empowerment, his enablement, and, and, and that's the way to fall in love in heaven. Yeah. Die to yourself daily and, and, uh, and live for Jesus that day. And that begins with preparation even now in, in making that something that we desire here on earth. I know for many people, when they think about heaven, they just think about the absence of hell. If I can just escape hell, then that will be heaven. We just want to get there having little understanding or regard for what it, that might mean. But it's just an escape from something else. Similarly to, um, you know, the, the thought that heaven will relieve me of the things that I uh, that I dislike here on earth. What do you say to those who uh, see heaven as just the opposite of, of hell and a place of uh, at least escaping that? Well, you know, um, I love what C.S. Lewis said, Georgine. He, he alluded something to the fact that that life here on earth is like it's like reading the title page. That's all it is. It's not the real story, but we get caught up in it as though it were the real story. But life here on earth is but the title page. We turn that title page. We leapfrog our tombstone. We enter through those gates of pearl and step into heaven. And that's when the real story begins. That's where chapter one begins. The real uh, story for which we were created. 
Uh, down here on earth is only preparation for that marvelous story yet to be lived up there. And God is fitting for us, uh, fitting us for heaven right now. And everything we do down here on earth, everything has a direct bearing on our capacity for joy and worship and service in heaven. Um, every drastic little obedience, every time we say no to temptation, every kind word we offer, every thoughtful deed we give to a neighbor, everything is accruing for us a larger capacity, a stretched and eternal capacity for bigger worship, greater joy, and happier service in heaven. And Georgine, I don't want to miss those opportunities. I don't want to meander through life with a ho-hum spiritual attitude, half-heartedly uh, in love with Jesus. I don't want um, to, to live a life of complaint and discontent. No, I'm not going to, I don't want to miss the opportunity of increasing my eternal capacity for serving Jesus and worshiping him and enjoying him forever. So I think Earth, for us, Earth's challenge is to see it as the minor leagues. And we're in training for the major leagues in heaven. And I don't want to be less in the kingdom of heaven. Boy, it would be wonderful to one day be considered great in the kingdom of heaven because there will be degrees of joy and service and worship in heaven. Some will have lesser of a degree, uh, and others will have greater degrees. And how we live on earth uh, depends on where our eternal estate will be. So um, get busy about investing in heavenly glories above. Like Colossians chapter 3 says, set your mind, set your heart, set your focus on, on heaven above. And suffering down here on earth is a great way to do just that. Mm. Amen. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. We're talking with Johnny Erickson Tata, the re-release of her book written back in the mid-90s, Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective, and she offers her perspective from 2018. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Johnny Erickson Tata. She is the author of Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective. And this is the re-release of the book that she wrote originally in 1995. Of course, it's been updated from her perspective of uh, spiritual maturity, and it's just a delight to read. She's just a, such a beautiful writer. In fact, in the introduction, she writes, Actual mountains and clouds are exalting, but even the most beautiful displays of Earth's glory, towering thunderheads above a wheat field, or the view of the Grand Canyon from the South Rim are only rough sketches of heaven. Earth's best is only a dim reflection, a preliminary rendering of the glory that will one day be revealed. I can just have that sense. It resonates in my heart, uh, that anticipation of heaven, and it really reflects and has a, an impact on what I do here on Earth as we are preparing in the minor leagues for that major league day. Now, I would be remiss, and I know I would hear from listeners if I didn't uh, take the opportunity to ask you how you were doing. You mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation that you have been diagnosed with stage three cancer. What does that mean for you, and how are you doing? Well, uh, they discovered this cancer back in early December of 2018, and uh, I had the tumor removed, and uh, currently I'm under radiation. Uh, let's see, this morning was my 19th radiation mm. treatment out of 35. So uh, tomorrow, will, tomorrow will be number 20, and I'll have, uh, what, 15 more to go to reach 35. So I'm hanging in there. Um, our listeners might think that my voice sounds a little froggy, a little weak. Well, it is, I guess, after so much radiation. Um, they have to protect my lungs as best they can. 
but uh, no doubt my lungs, as weak as they are as a quadriplegic, will be affected. But, um, but that's okay, you know. Here I am talking to you, expending breath, got lots of energy, and I'm extremely grateful to God. You know, when, when I learned I got this, uh, this cancer, this reoccurring cancer for a second time, they told me that it was, uh, because it was reoccurring, it was going to be a little more aggressive and faster growing. But Psalm 112 has been such a mainstay, where the first few verses say, how joyful are those who fear the Lord. Such people will not be overcome by evil. They do not fear bad news. They're confident, and they can face their foes triumphantly because they trust that the Lord will care for them. And Georgie, that's, that's, that's my mainstay. I'm not going to fear this as bad news. I trust in a sovereign God who has everything under control. He knows what's best for my spiritual development. Um, and it's, uh, this has bound my husband and me so much more closely together. Mm. My friends and I, are, they're all so much more supportive. And it's just wonderful to see this, this community that God has fashioned around this battle against cancer, a community of prayer, support, love, uh, fresh cooked meals brought to my front door. <laughs> it's, it's, been, um, it's been a great experience thus far. It really has. Mm. Well, I know many of our listeners are a part of that grand company that has been and will continue to pray for you and for your husband. So grateful for the opportunity to talk with you today. Um, You write that uh, heaven is more real than we can imagine, too grand for the human mind to comprehend, too wondrous for our language to describe. And we do oftentimes struggle with what is heaven exactly? And you in the book, you you give us what scripture has to say in a way that's perhaps a a bit easier for us uh, to understand as you talk about what heaven is, what we will be like when we're there and what to anticipate. And I think it really adds to our joy of anticipating and makes our, our suffering and our trials a bit more bearable. Well, I'm glad you said that about our suffering because uh, that is what really prepares us to meet God in heaven, our suffering. Because just think, suppose you never in your life knew physical pain. Suppose you never had a sore back or twisted ankle or decayed molar. I mean, how could you appreciate the scarred hands with which Christ will greet you. And now, if Jesus went through so much suffering to secure for us that which we don't deserve, my goodness, why why should we complain about our suffering here on earth? It's only a tiny fraction of what he went through on our behalf. But if instead, when we suffer, if we would but stifle complaints and rejoice in the privilege of participating in his sufferings, we're going to be overjoyed when glory bursts on the scene because Romans chapter 8 promises us we're going to share in his glory. You know, I've often said, Georgine, that in a way I hope I could take to heaven my old tattered Everson Jennings wheelchair. Hmm. Uh, I know I'm not, I know I can't do that, (laughs) but if I could, I I would, and I would point to the empty seat and I would say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? For decades when you had me in it, I was paralyzed, but it showed me how paralyzed you must have felt to be nailed to your cross. My limitations taught me something about the limitations that you endured when you laid aside your robes of glory to, 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 to enter into suffering, our suffering. And at that point, when, when I say thank you, Jesus, he will know that I mean it because he will see and understand that I, too, have suffered. He will recognize me from having entered with him into that inner sanctum of fellowshipping 
and the sharing of his sufferings. And so when I get a chance to thank him, I'm going to say, Jesus, the weaker I felt in this wheelchair, the harder I leaned on you. But the harder I did lean on you, Jesus, the more I discovered how strong you are. So thank you, Lord, for learning obedience in your suffering because you gave me the grace to yes. learn how to obey in my suffering. And yes. that, that, that one commonality we'll have, suffering, it's what is going to bind us so much more intimately together in heaven. Mm, that's so beautiful. Well, let me ask, what will we do in heaven? I think a lot of people have the misconception that heaven's going to be pretty boring because, you know, there's a lot to do here on earth. And the God of the universe who spoke this earth and everything on it into existence somehow is not creative enough to uh, design a heaven in which we will be challenged and joyful and, and uh, satisfied and so on. Well, for one thing, the Bible says we are going to judge fallen angels. Right beside the Lord Jesus, that's his co-heir, we will judge fallen angels. And, and Georgine, I, I don't know who those demons are, but I know they have harassed me at night at 4 a.m. when I have awakened in pain and I can't get back to sleep and being paralyzed. I can't twist or turn on my mattress. I, I can't get, a, get in a different position. And I'll lie there and I'll feel harassed by doubting the goodness of God or I'll feel harassed by some demon whispering to me that, that God isn't fair. Look what he's making me go through. I mean, there's so many harassing spirits. And I don't know their names. And I don't care to know their names. But when I get to heaven, I'll get a chance to judge them. Mm. And my friends listening will do the same for every time. They've been haunted by spirits of depression or despair or thoughts of suicide. I mean, these just aren't innocuous um, thoughts that flit in and out of our mind. No, Satan, our adversary, sends his minions to harass us and torment us, just as they did Jesus, our elder brother. So we're going to get a chance to sit in judgment over those angels, and fallen angels, and I cannot wait for that day. And when they get thrown into the lake of fire, and from now on, it'll be the anointed of the Lord entering Zion with joy and gladness, Sorrow and sign shall flee away. Everlasting joy will crown our heads. And it, it is going to be not the day of Johnny or the or Georgine or the day of any of us who are listening in on this conversation. No, it's going to be the day of Christ. It's going to be Jesus' day. And I'm so excited about rejoicing with him at being crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords in the whole universe. It's going to be quite a party. And so now the work that we have to do is issue party invitations. Come to the banquet. Don't miss out. It, it, you know, this is, this is one celebration that's going to last forever. And if we're going to get younger and younger and wiser and wiser, discovering things more and more. You know, I was talking to somebody just the other day about, he was saying, but heaven, isn't it going to be boring? I mean, worshiping God forever? That's like singing a praise song 1,495 times, you get so tired of it. Please let me sing something else. We're going to get bored. But I said to him, do you know that portion of Scripture in Deuteronomy where the seraphim are praising God constantly, day in, day, day out, 24 hours? They're nonstop saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Well, you might think that's boring. But what I like to think is, God shows them some marvelous facet of his character. Hmm. And when they see that facet, they go, holy, 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 we didn't know you were like that, Jesus. Oh, my goodness. But then in the middle of their praise, God will turn slightly like a diamond 
revealing another amazing new, brand new facet of his character. And the seraphim discovered that. And oh my goodness, breathless, they go, holy, 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 we never knew that about you, God. And it's going to be like that for all of eternity. God is constantly going to be showing us something new, something fresh about himself for us to discover. And so no boredom in heaven, just one constant, amazing breath of wonder after another as we discover more about him, discover more about ourselves, about each other, and about this marvelous plan for all of eternity that he has for us to rule the universe. I don't know what that means. But it sounds pretty exciting to me. It certainly does. Well, Johnny, I so appreciate your taking the time to talk with us about the re-release of your book, Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective. It certainly has been an inspiration to me, and I would recommend our listeners who want to know a little bit more about Jesus and that place that he is going to call us to. Um, This is a great book to do that. It's published by Zondervan. Lord bless you, and you will certainly be in our prayers. Thanks, Sir Jean. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Again, Johnny Erickson Tata, one of the world's leading international advocates for people affected by disability, 50 plus years, 52 or 53 years in that wheelchair as a paraplegic and such ministry that has flowed from uh, this suffering heart is uh, just amazing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. As if there weren't more important things going on in the world, M&M's, the candy-coated chocolate, has a serious um, spokes candy uh, that have been used to advertise the sweet treat. And over the course of last year, the spokes candies became increasingly woke, or as Jane Huang, global vice president of Mars, put it, modern. Mars Wrigley, the company that owns M&M's, trotted out a plus-sized purple female character for inclusivity. I'm not sure what she was supposed to represent, the fictitious cartoon candy. The purple M&M also has some nuts, although, so it's perhaps um, gender-confused, the uh, producers suggest. Mars also revamped the brown and green M&M's to make them less feminine and is even playing with the gender and sexuality of green and orange characters. These fictitious cartoon candies. Yes, apparently Mars thinks candy has a gender and sexuality. The latest campaign featured the female characters upside down on a candy bag with the ad slogan, supporting women, flipping the status quo. Why are they pushing this? Well, the chief marketing officer, she stated the M&M brand is on a mission to use the power of fun, to create purposeful connections as we work to create a world where everyone feels they belong. And cartoon fictitious candy characters. Is that really candy's purpose? Is candy really an appropriate venue for identity politics? Well, in the 21st century, in the year 2023, the answer is clearly, yeah. Well, this wokeification of candy has predictably sparked a lot of backlash from many people. We can't even agree on candy. Uh, One YouTuber put it this way, Eminem is pandering to the woke idiots instead of uh, giving um, a a concern about actual issues that this chocolate company has been a part of for quite a while. You know, like the fact that many of their employees are children. For the record, it is in fact true that there is a lawsuit regarding child slavery against big chocolate. Mars, Nestle and Hershey's are all named in the suit. Maybe there'll be an Eminem coming out to represent that. 
Well, the uh, backlash has also been rather severe that Mars decided to pull the M&M characters entirely, according to Mars public statement. Again, we're talking about candy and cartoon characters. In the last year, we've made some changes to our beloved spokes candies. We weren't sure if anybody would even notice, and we definitely didn't think it would break the Internet. But now we get it. My guess is they really don't, but now we get it, they write. Even a candy's shoes can be polarizing, which was the last thing M&M's wanted since we're all about bringing people together. Therefore, we have decided to take an indefinite pause from the spokes candies, the fictitious cartoon characters. In other words, Mars is mad at conservatives for noticing and is trying to trivialize its woke statement by saying people were mad about the shoes. This is typical blame shifting. Instead of defending its choices or saying, yes, politicizing candy was dumb and hurt our bottom line, Mars blames it on the right. People noticing the woke agenda that is actively harming our culture is not the reason sales flopped. It's because Mars decided to make a political statement, one that even a sizable portion of women are offended by. Candy going woke isn't going to convince anyone, but it's certainly great fodder for satirists. The best example of the mockery rather, is seen in the Babylon Bee video of a trans M&M identifying as a Skittle. This is the world that we're living in. Well, in other news, Meta has decided to reinstate President Trump's Facebook and Instagram accounts. The former president's accounts will be reinstated, Meta announced today, uh, more than two years after it suspended the accounts in the wake of the January 6th Capitol riot. Well, Nick Clegg, who's the president of global affairs at Netta, said that uh, the accounts will be up and running in the coming weeks. So indefinite when that will be. The two platforms will implement new guardrails to deter repeat offenses, Clegg said, including heightened penalties for repeated offenses, penalties which will apply to other figures whose accounts are reinstated from suspension related to civil unrest under our updated protocol, end quote. In the event that Mr. Trump posts further violating content, the content will be removed and he will be suspended for between one month and two years, depending on the severity of the violation. If I was a betting person, I'd give him about 15 minutes and he'll be off the platform. The reinstatement comes after the former president's campaign wrote a letter to Meta on the 17th of this month asking the company to allow the former president to return to Facebook. We believe that the ban on President Trump's account on Facebook has dramatically distorted and inhibited the public discourse. That's a. President Trump's uh, campaign in a letter obtained by NBC News. Well, Meta suspended the president's accounts over a posts uh, that he made during the Capitol riot. These are uh, there are things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously, viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly, unfairly treated for so long. Trump posted at the time, go home with love in peace. Remember this day forever. End quote. Well, Facebook co-founder Mark Zuckerberg extended Trump's initial 24-hour ban, saying the risks of allowing the president to continue to use our service during this period is simply too great. Therefore, we are extending the block we have placed on his Facebook and Instagram accounts indefinitely and for at least the next two weeks until the peaceful transition of power is complete. Well, two years later, he wasn't invited back. Then Facebook later announced in June of 2021 that it was banning the former president from both platforms until January of 2023. 
Well, the former president's post during the Capitol riot also led Twitter to permanently ban him from the platform. However, Twitter's new CEO, Elon Musk, reinstated the former president's account on November 19th. Uh, Trump has yet to make use of the account, instead preferring to stick to his own truth social platform. But when he needs the eyes of the general public, I'm guessing he'll be back with a furor. Also, former presidents Obama and Clinton's offices say all classified documents went to the National Archives. Of course, that's what others have said, only to discover, oops, we've done it again. Barack Obama and Bill Clinton say that they turned over all classified materials to the National Archives and Records Administration at the end of their presidencies, hoping to avoid the classified documents controversies embroiling their successors. Consistent with the Presidential Records Act, all presidential, uh, President Obama's classified records were submitted to the National Archives upon leaving office. His office said to the, uh, the Hill in an emailed statement, NARA continues to assume physical and legal custody of President Obama's materials to date. All of President Clinton's classified materials were properly turned over to NARA in accordance with the Presidential Records Act, a Clinton spokesperson said, speaking to Fox News Digital. President Biden, former President Donald Trump and former Vice President Mike Pence are facing scrutiny after officials found classified materials outside the White House. Under the Presidential Records Act of 78, official records of presidents, vice presidents and their immediate staff are required to turn over certain records following their time in the White House to the NARA, the National Archives uh, Association. Well, this uh, this past summer, the FBI recovered a slew of documents after Trump declined to turn them over to the National Archives, prompting a special counsel probe. The former president continues to dispute the classification and believes the information and records to have been declassified. Meanwhile, Biden's lawyers uncovered three stashes of classified documents in his Wilmington, Delaware home, as well as the Penn Biden Center, a think tank in Washington. Federal investigators discovered a fourth stash of his documents also at his Wilmington home. Another special counsel has been tapped to lead that investigation into his improper retention of classified records. The discovery of said classified documents in Vice President Pence's possession was made after his team conducted a search of his Indiana home and the office of his political advocacy group, Advancing American Freedom. Well, according to his team, the former vice president informed the National Archives in January on the 18th that a few potential classified documents were found in two small boxes. Another two boxes contained copies of his presidential, excuse me, vice presidential papers. The National Archives then informed the FBI per standard procedure. So we'll see um, what happens next if, in fact, there's a search of the documents and these two former presidents and others um, a possession to see if this uh, will develop. But many are suggesting what really needs to happen is an overhaul of the system in which inadvertent or deliberate uh, removal of said documents has become something of a um, of a regular problem. And according to um, one commentator with questions still largely unanswered from the White House on the president's possession of classified documents, Lawmakers and reporters are hoping to find out who had access to the materials at the current president's Delaware home. New York Post columnist Miranda Devine argued on Wednesday in the Brian Kilmeade show that an unusual Hunter Biden email about Ukraine policy suggests the president's son may have used the classified information while doing business in the country. 
She says there's an email on his laptop that basically looks very much like it came from a classified briefing. At least it has the flavor of an official briefing, perhaps a classified one. I think Ron Johnson said it looks like the sort of briefing that he got, a classified briefing he got as a senator. So the role that um, the president's son, who resided in the residence where the classified documents were most recently found, uh, is under further scrutiny as to whether or not he had access to and used information from those documents. I sure would love to uh, focus all of our attention and conversation on members of the, of Congress, the Senate and the president doing the people's business. But I guess ethical issues also have to be addressed as well. We'll continue to follow as they develop. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.